help us, to mold us, to make us. And one of the things he uses is sometimes the most difficult are different people. And so I want to talk today about people in our lives. A very familiar passage of Scripture, Proverbs 27, 17. It says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. My sister Pam cut her hand preparing for Thanksgiving. Uh, and cut it and had to have five stitches in it. And uh, she cut it on, I thought she cut it with her knife, but she cut it on a can. Uh, can lid but most time when we think of cutting ourselves, we think of a knife uh, I used to love when I was growing up watch my daddy sharpen his knife when we were hunting season or whatever he'd take out his pocket knife and sharpen it what I liked is because when he got through he'd always shave the hair on his arm and I thought man that was neat uh, and I like that uh, there's no better tool for a cook than a good sharp knife and I've always heard a dull knife will cut you a lot quicker than a sharp knife because you're having to work harder and you have more, more prone for it to slip and mess you up. I did a little study on knife sharpening and sharp knives this week. You know what the sharpest knife is? I'd never heard of it. It's called an obsidian knife. It doesn't come from carbon steel like your kitchen knives or your pocket knife or something like that. It comes from volcanic rock. And it says this, it can be sharpened. The obsidian knife can be sharpened ten times sharper than a razor blade. Now, that's sharp. I can't even imagine that. Uh, but it's not useful for, like, the kitchen because it doesn't have the durability and the toughness and things like that. Uh, if you've ever looked at a knife, the blade of a knife under a microscope, I'm going to show you some pictures. This is what a blade looks like, like 300 times power. doesn't look all that. It looks kind of ragged, doesn't it? Kind of like the Grand Tetons almost. Uh, all right, that's after one sharpening. That's after two sharpenings. After three. Can you see a lot of difference? You still see the, ga the gaps and the crevices and all that. After four sharpenings. Five. Uh, anyway, when you think of a knife or you think of sharpening something... That's what we usually think of, sharpening a knife or some type of a blade that's going to be used for cutting. Have you ever thought about how many times in the Word of God a knife is mentioned or cutting? Let me just give you just a few of our most familiar stories in the Bible. Most of us, after Thanksgiving, we need to go on a diet. Here's the best diet in the Bible is Proverbs 23, 2. Put a knife to your throat if you're a man of great appetite. Now, that's better than Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. I can promise you that. Put a knife to your throat if you're eating too much. We think of uh, Samson. He finally was, uh, of course, messing around, playing around with his girlfriend Delilah. And she was trying to get the secret to his strength out of him. And he finally, she felt like, you just won't be honest with me. And he finally said this in Judges chapter 16, 17. He said, Never has a razor come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. We all remember the story of Abraham. God was testing him, and he sent him up there to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it took about two or three days, about a three-day journey before they got to the mountain that God told him to go to. 
And you would have thought God at that time would have said, okay, I can see you're, you're going to obey me. But he didn't. He climbed up that mountain. Still God didn't say, I see you're going to obey me. He built an altar. And God still didn't say anything. Put his son up on the altar and tied him down. God still didn't say anything until he got the knife out. And was ready to plunge a knife into him. And the angel of the Lord said, now I see that you fear God. One of the most powerful and familiar stories in the Bible. How about Elijah facing the 450 false prophets of Baal? He gave them the first shot to see who, whose God was going to answer by fire. And they prayed and cut themselves all over, blood everywhere, trying to get their God to answer. And, of course, their God never did answer because there is no other God. Jesus taught a lot of lessons. One of them he taught, he said, if your hand or your foot offends you, cut it off. Now, that's not the answer. He wasn't telling us that's the secret. To get, if your hand's stealing, just cut them hands off. He's not telling us. But he said it'd be a lot better to go through life maimed than to go through hell with, with all your faculties. Of course, we all remember Peter in, in the Garden of Gethsemane where he took out his sword and cut off that guy's ear, Malchus, the high priest's servant. But there's a lot of scriptures about cutting with a knife or a sword or whatever. Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Branch doesn't bear fruit, we take it away. But if it bears fruit, we'll prune it. That means you, you cut it strategically so it'll, it'll grow and bear more fruit. So a knife is a big thing. We see it all through the Word of God and how sharp it is. Uh, I remember years ago, this is probably 14, 15 years ago, there was a guy that one of our customers uh, had a steer. He's wanting to sell it. He had a good price for it, and I said, I, I think I might buy it. I wanted to get a steer, put put it up in the freezer. Uh, now, his steer was like 1,400, 1,500 pounds. I will never buy one that big again. But uh, here's the way it is. If you buy a 1,000-pound steer, time you get off the head and the hide and the organs out and everything, you got about 400-something pounds of meat out of that 1,000 pounds. Well, anyway, this, I, I took this guy's steer and sent it to the butcher, and they cut it up for me, and I got it home. I had so much meat, I couldn't imagine. I, I couldn't wait to get in. I got in there going to get some of the steaks, and the butcher didn't trim the fat off. My steaks had two inches of fat all the way around it. Now, I don't mind fat, but, but I like fat, but I don't want two inches of fat, uh, but Here's what I'm saying. God says, I need to trim up some things in your life. I need to cut away the bone and the fat and the things that are not useful. And what he uses is people a lot of times to shape us. Good people. He'll use bad people too. He'll use tough people, weak people, kind people, obnoxious people, godly people, ungodly people. That's one of the ways he changes us. He'll change us through people knocking off the rough edges so we can have a sharp edge and our life can cut through this dark world. So let's look at that today. Uh, the people in our life, first of all, variety. We were eating supper one night here earlier this year or last year with Brian and Rennell. Somehow or another, we got to talking about uh, there's an app you can put on your phone where you can look up your family tree. And I've always wanted to know what my family tree was. I've always wanted to know how far back my ancestors, uh, I'd like to know who they were. 
Now, my daughter, I told, Dar um, I told Lauren to put it on my phone, and she said, Dad, you may not want to know uh, what your family tree is. I said, yes, I do, because I studied in school in 1607. John Smith founded Jamestown, Virginia. That was the first English settlement. I thought, he might be my cousin. I don't know. I may have, have, I may have started America. You never know that. I just wanted to, uh, so I was ready to, I wanted to look it up and, and see just what my family tree was. Well, you know, the world, the world started from Adam and Eve, and it's been a, it's, gone, it's got a lot of branches on it now, 8 billion people in this world. Uh, a lot of people just look at the world, and they divide it up too, men or women or the rich versus the poor or conservative versus liberal or uh, whatever it may be. But there's all types of people in this world. A lot of them good, not so good. A lot of them do great things, some do terrible things. There's a lot of people in the church. Not all the people in the church are good, but God uses people in the church too to help shape our lives. Somebody said one time, I heard a long time ago, and I, I looked it back up and found it again, Church is made up of all types of people. Sometimes churches have the Tater family in their church. Uh, the Taters, that's a big family. The daddy's named Speck, Spectator. A lot of people don't get involved with anything. Uh, they like to look. His wife's named Hezzy, Hesitator. They never can make up their mind. They're always thinking back and never step out. Then they've got some brothers, Agitator. There's a lot of people that like find fault and stir up trouble. Got a, got a sister named Imitator. Uh, they copy everything else and everybody else can't think for themselves. Got a boy named Dictator uh, who tells everybody else what to do. Or there's another one called Rotator. Uh, they can't stay in one spot very long. And the, and the youngest child named Irritator. Uh, and they keep everything messed up. Well, there's all types of people in the world. There's all types of people in the church. But God uses people to change us, to shape us to mold us, and to make us. And uh, people have a big part in our life. Let's look at the world, first of all, before we get to the church. When God saves us, He does not take us to heaven right then. He leaves us in this cesspool called a world, and He leaves us here for a reason. A couple of reasons, really. And so He wants us to grow up in this atmosphere down here. He's going to test us. He's going to try us. You know, a lot of people think uh, once you become a Christian, everything gets to be easy for you. That's a lie. That's not, that's not the truth. God didn't leave us in a playground. He left us in a battleground. He left us in a place where it's not easy. We're now swimming against the current. The world system, when you were part of the world, when you were lost, you were swimming along with the world, and it was okay. Still hard, but it was okay. Now as a child of God, you're swimming against the current. We were on vacation here a few weeks ago. First stop we made as we were headed up, we went by Tallulah Gorge, which is up in North Georgia, up around Clayton. And I hadn't been by Tallulah Gorge in 20 or 25 years, it seemed like. And uh, we stopped in there. My daughter and them had been there a few weeks earlier, and we called them. We said, we're here at Tallulah Gorge, too. She said, well, y'all need to go down the steps to see the gorge, see the river. It's beautiful and all. I said, Okay. Well, we got there, and it said 316 steps down. <laughs> and I told my wife, I said, do you, you want to do it? I guess we can do it. So we, It wasn't too bad, but it was 316 steps back up. 
and my poor wife could not hardly handle it. Uh, uh, I would have toted her, but there'd been two dead people down at the bottom. Uh, uh, but we're living in a, a culture where we're, it's uphill. We're going against the current. We're, we're in a world where there's a God of this world that's in control of the world system, not our life. And so it's, it's very difficult. God leaves us in a place like that. Wouldn't it be nice if every restaurant was a Christian restaurant, every mechanic was a Christian mechanic, every doctor was a Christian doctor, every movie on television was a Christian movie and all this? Be nice, but God says, no, I'm leaving you there because i got some people going to knock some rough edges off of you. They're going to shape you up a little bit. That's what the world is. I'm going to read you some scriptures. Here's what the Bible has to say about this world that God left us in. First of all, the world's going to hate you. None of us like to be hated. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me for it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. Here's what the Lord's uh, stepbrother, half-brother James said in James 4.4. 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do, not know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Pretty strong, pretty strong. We're in a very, you try to fit in and try to be a part of this world system, you're, you're fighting against God. Here's another scripture. Uh, Proverbs, I mean, and uh, this was in 2 Corinthians. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors this is paul giving his testimony in labors more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons more frequently in deaths often from the jews five times i received 40 stripes minus one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked and a night and a day i have been in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters in perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Didn't sound like he had a very easy life, did it? Listen to another scripture in Second Corinthians. Did I have another? There we go. He said, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. All right, what I'm trying to tell you, God said, I'm leaving you down here, and it ain't going to be easy. It's not going to necessarily be easy in your life down here. Anybody that tells you that's telling a lie to you. And so I'm leaving you in that type of thing. It's a part of the world. Uh, growing up with a farm supply here for 20-something years, I've watched how watermelons have been changed over the years. used to be that there was about three types, Jubilee, Gray, Charleston Grays, and Crimson Sweets, and they would get the seed. The seed was cheap, and they'd sow them real thick. 
And then as the plants came up, they'd come and hoe them out and thin them out and leave the one standing so they could grow out. And that, that's the way it was. But nowadays, the, the seed's very expensive. And so they take the seed and send it to a plant house. And the plant house grows, puts them in their little thing, and they grows them in that environment like that. And then the farmer, a month or so later, gets the, the plants, and they transplant them out there in their field. Uh, but we weren't made to live in a plant house. Just like them seed, those plants weren't made to live in that type of environment because this environment, there's cold, there's hot, there's rain, there's drought, there's all kinds of things. Well, that's the way it is. Uh, some of them trees out there in them out west where they have them wildfires, they live in some difficult things. Now, some of them fires are so hot it burns up everything, but some of them trees can withstand that because they got a, a, a thicker bark and the fire never gets in to where it kill the tree. Some of those pine trees out there, they drop their cones and stuff, the seed, but the seed never germinates or opens up to put a new tree out until it's gone through the fire. The fire is what makes it open up. So what I'm saying is God says, I'm going to leave you there on this earth, in this world, where you're hated, where it's going to be difficult, because I'm going to use that and I'm going to use people to sharpen and knock all the burrs off of your life. Now, that's the people in the world. What about the church? Wow. Let's look at the term for Christians. There's a lot of terms we use. We're, we're sheep being led by a shepherd. We're a child that runs to our father. We're a soldier in God's army. We're a servant serving our master. We're a runner running a race to our master, our, our Jesus, one day. We're a saint. I remember Jason the other day telling us he had been to a funeral. And at the funeral they were, they were singing, When the Saints Go Marching In. Me and my wife came back through Louisiana on, on this last vacation. And I, I, we wanted to stop off in New Orleans. I said, I want to see what New Orleans looks like. We're going to spend one night here. That would be my last night there. But anyway, that's, that's the one night we spent there. Had some good food. We come out of the restaurant. Out in the middle of the of street, there was a little band playing when the saints go marching in. And uh, I thought, wow, that's what I think of when I think of uh, New Orleans. Well, let me tell you this. We're all saints, but some people live like ain'ts. Uh, somebody wrote this little poem, said this, to live above with saints we love, that's going to be grace and glory. To live, to dwell below with saints we know, that's a different story. So anyway, Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so God said, I'm not only going to leave you in a world full of people that hate you, I'm going to leave you in a church where the brothers and sisters in Christ can help sharpen and shape you also. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now this is just show you we're supposed to have an impact on each other's lives. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly, and I gave you the wrong scripture right there. That's supposed to be First uh, Thessalonians 5.14. I think I made it supposed to have been Second Thessalonians. Anyway, what it was saying was Paul was telling the people, warn the lazy, encourage those that are discouraged, strengthen this one, and all, showing that we have an impact on each other's lives. So the rest of this message, I'm going to tell you how... The church is so important for sharpening each one of us, for helping us to grow in our walk with the Lord. Here's how, we, here's how the 
people of God can help you sharpen your life. You can learn from their example. You can be inspired by their example. Now, I tell you what, it's inspiring to me to watch other Christians live the Christian life the way it's supposed to be lived. It's very inspiring to me. Um, I love to see people that live their life daily. They're not up one day and down the next, in one day, out the next, hot one day, cold the next. I like people that are settled and, uh, and established in their walk with the Lord. I, watch, I like to see the example of people that go to the Lord in prayer about everything. There's nothing too big, nothing too small, nothing too hard, nothing too easy. Take it all to the Lord. I like to see people that walk in humility, not people that are, look at me, put the spotlight on me, let me tell you about me and all this. I like the people that are humble and walk not in pride. I like to watch people that walk softly but walk in the armor, the full armor of God. I like to watch people, Christians, that are tender. They're not judgmental and dogmatic against others, but they're tender and compassionate and help each other. I like to watch that. Now, everybody in the church is not a good mentor to watch. I understand that. There's one, one old boy that uh, had an employee at his uh, office that was lazy and mouthy, complained, griped, and didn't like anything, but didn't do anything either. Finally, one day, the, uh, the boss fired him, and he told his other employees, Eddie's no longer working here. Uh, I fired him today. And one of the employees said, well, uh, you got rid of Eddie. Who's going to fill his vacancy? He said, Eddie didn't leave a vacancy. Uh, and so a lot of people in the house of God don't leave a vacancy. But you need to live your life so that you'd be missed if you're ever gone. But here's how we learn. Here's how we grow and how we're sharpened by other people. We can learn from their example. I'll tell you this. The disciples watched Jesus and learned from watching him more than just listening to him. They didn't just listen to him teach uh, little sermons every day. They watched how he acted. I'm going to give you some examples. They watched a woman that was caught in adultery. Dumped at his feet, and everybody's standing around saying, All right, what are you going to do? Moses said she needs to be stoned. He didn't say anything. They're watching. What is he going to do? He just wrote something in the dirt, took a stone, saying, Anybody doesn't have a sin, you go ahead and throw the first one. They learned something that day. They watched a Syrophoenician woman come to him. It was pestering the disciples to nothing. They said, Get rid of this woman. She came to Jesus needing help for her child. He ignored her. Then he kind of insulted her, called her a dog, really. And then when she demonstrated her faith, his heart melted, gave her whatever she needed. They watched him. They watched him going to the temple. They seen him going to the temple many times, but one day he went to the temple. He was fit to be tied. He took out a whip, started running people out, turning tables over, going crazy. They'd never seen him act like that. They watched how concerned he was for how his father's house was being turned into something it was not supposed to be. They brought children sometimes to him, and the disciples said, get these kids out of here. He said, uh-uh, you suffer the little kids to come unto me and forbid them not. They watched how he did things. They didn't just listen to parables all day. They watched how he acted, how he dealt with people. Martin Luther was speaking at the funeral of Nicholas Hausman. He said, what we preach... He lived, and that's what it was with Jesus. So one of the ways I, I get helped by other people in the church, 
I get to watch their example of living out this gospel, and that's really important. Here's another way people help us. They encourage us when we're discouraged. Anybody here ever been discouraged? Now, if you can't raise your hand, then you've got a problem with lying, and we need to do something about that because everybody here has been discouraged at some time in their life. Uh, we get discouraged for a lot of different reasons. Brother Ken Davis, he doesn't come here, they've moved off, but he used to encourage our choir constantly. He, he acted like we were better than we really were. He would tell us we're the greatest thing in the world, but he's constantly encouraging and, and building us up. We need encouragement. Uh, we need encouragement, and, and that's one of the ways we help each other, by encouraging one another. One old fisherman was out, uh, he was getting crabs, and he pulled up the crab trap and put it in his, dumped the crabs out and put it in a five-gallon bucket or whatever, and somebody said, hey, you better put a lid on that. Them crabs are going to get out. He said, nah. As soon as one starts trying to get out, another will grab him and pull him back in. We don't need people pulling us down. We need people lifting us up. We need encouragement. We need strength. I don't know how many of you have heard the story of, uh, called Stand and Deliver. It's the story of James Escalante. He was a teacher in a very rough area of Los Angeles. And they were having a PTA meeting, and all the parents were getting to come and meet the teachers of their children. woman came up to him and said, uh, I'm Johnny's mother. And he thought, well, that must be Johnny, who's the best student he had. He said, Johnny's mother, we're glad to meet you. Let me tell you something. You've got a good son. He is a joy to have in here. He's got a lot of potential, very smart. I think he's going to really do something when he gets out of here. He's going to do really great in life. She said, thank you very much. Well, her, her son was Johnny, the worst John, Johnny in class. He was a troublemaker. He didn't study. He cut up things and made a mess of things. So she went home that night and said, I met your teacher. She, he said, who'd you meet? Mr. Escalante. Oh, goodness. What, he, hope he, didn't, he, he said he had something to say about you. He said, what do you have to say about me? He said, you're a great student. You've got a lot of potential. You're going to make something of yourself. It's a joy for him to have you. He said, he didn't say that, did he? He said, yeah. The next day he went to class and he met the teacher, Escalante. He said, my mother told me what you said. I thank you. He turned out to be the best student he had because he finally had somebody that believed he was worth something and believed he had something, he had some potential. Everybody ever heard of William Wilberforce? He was, a, he was a guy pushed in Great Britain over trying to get slavery abolished. And he tried and he tried. And he was like beating his head against a wall. One of his best friends was John Wesley, the father or the founder of the Methodist Church, the old preacher. And he told him, he said, I'm ready to give up. I'm not going to work. And here's what John Wesley said to him. Unless God has raised you up for this thing, you'll be worn out by the opposition. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Who is stronger than God? Don't be weary. Go in the name of God and the power of his might. John Wesley died about six years later. William Wilberforce kept fighting to abolish slavery for 45 more years. In 1833, three days before he died, slavery was abolished in the British Empire. 
we need people to encourage us because there's a lot of things that can discourage you in this life. We need people to protect us from error. We live in a world of deception. It's hard to know what's right, what's wrong. The, angel, the, the enemy can transform himself as an angel of light. Why do we need protection from error so much? Because uh, we walk in the flesh sometimes and not the spirit. We get our eyes on man sometimes and not God. There's a lot of reasons we get sidetracked sometimes. Uh, there was a show on television, still comes on, I think, called Man vs. Wild. It's a British guy that they dump him in some of the most remote places on earth, and he shows you how to survive, how to build fires, how to find stuff to eat, how to find something to drink, how to survive in the most harsh environment if you were ever put there. And he'll say things like this. You see that, that plant right there? got a lot of vitamins he calls it vitamins he said got a lot of vitamins right there but don't eat that one you eat that one you'll be dead within an hour and they look almost exactly alike it is hard to tell what's good nowadays and what'll kill you and we need each other bible says in a multitude of counselors there's safety we need the safety of others uh so we need that we went to beijing china here a number of years ago I don't know how many, about 16 years ago now. As soon as you get walking around there, all you get is Chinese coming up to you trying to sell you something. It could be an iPod or uh, it could be a watch, could be a, a purse, could be uh, anything you can imagine. Uh, but it's mostly counterfeit junk. It ain't worth whatever they're trying to sell you. And you've got to be on the guard for that. So we need people to protect us from error because it were easy to be deceived. Here's another reason we need people in our life to hold us accountable. Now, when you give your heart to Jesus, not your head, when you give him your heart, things change. Your life has changed. We're a new person in Christ. You do not become a Christian by signing a piece of paper. You don't become a Christian by coming up here and shaking the preacher's hand. Schombach said you might well shake a donkey's tail. You, you, don't, uh, you don't become a Christian by doing things like that. You become a Christian when you give the Lord your heart. But we struggle uh, sometimes walking this life out. And sometimes we need a pat on the back. That's called encouragement. Sometimes we need a kick in the seat of the britches. That means somebody holding us accountable. You need people in your life that will hold you accountable. You need people that will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. You need people in your life that will hold you accountable in a lot of things. Now, that's not easy. Nobody likes to tell other people what, where they're missing the mark or anything like that. If you like that, then you've got problems yourself. Nobody likes to hold people accountable because we know that we're all human beings too. But we need people like that. That helps sharpen us, sharpen us. I think of the Old Testament. You remember King David? You know his story. Him and Bathsheba, her husband, adultery, murder, all this. It rocked on for a long time, and he didn't, he didn't go say anything about it. But the prophet Nathan, who was not only a prophet of God, he was a friend of David. God said, you gotta, you're going to have to go tell him something. And so he come up with a story to him and kind of set him up. How would you like to be the man that has to tell the king he's wrong? And that's what Nathan had to do. Sometimes as a child of God, you have to tell other Christians you've got to hold them accountable when they're going off track. 
when they're getting lax, when they're, when they're following the world, whatever they may, we got out of love, we got to do that. Here's what Dathan had to do. And here's what you always need to do if you're going to hold somebody accountable. First of all, if somebody's going astray, make sure that what they're doing is wrong and not just hearsay or gossip. You can get in a mess if you start that way. Timing is everything. You can go to your boss and ask for a raise at the right time and you'll get it. You go to the wrong time, he's in a bad mood, you may get shown the door. Timing is everything when you're going to confront people. Here's another thing, another little tip. Choose your words carefully. Some people can say things that can offend and just make people go the other way. Some people can say the same thing but in the right spirit and people listen and people will wake up to it. You know what Nathan finally, the conclusion he said to David? Here's what he told him. You know why you did this? Because you've forgotten how good God's been to you and how God's blessed you. And the second reason he said you're in the mess you're in because you didn't think God would hold you accountable. God's like the Canadian Mounted Police. He always gets his man. And he found him. And God, we need people to hold us accountable that are close enough to us to can see when we're going astray and we're getting off track. We need people in our life in the church. They show us the reason for the church. Look at Hebrews 10.24. This is the reason we need each other in the church. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're here to help stir up, motivate, strengthen. Uh, we're not here to compete with each other. We're not here to try to impress each other. We're not here to try to show up each other or tear down one another. We're here to help encourage each other to be everything they can be in the Lord. I've got eight grandchildren. They're all different. I got four from Jason and Crystal, Ashley, Wesley, Kimberly, and Presley. Those grandkids are very, very quiet. They, you don't know they're around you sometimes. Very soft-spoken, very quiet. They may not be out there, but when, when they're with me, they're very quiet. I mean, I could be at the house in the lounge chair, and Wesley would... If the house was on fire, he'd say, Papa, house is on fire. That'd be about how he'd say it. I'd say, what? So some of my grandkids are quiet. Now, i got Brody. That's Brandon and Crystal's. Brody looks like Crystal, acts like Brandon. Now, she says Brandon acts like me. Now, don't believe that. Uh, but anyway, Brody's real competitive. He, he likes to compete. He doesn't just like to compete. He likes to win. There's many, Brandon said at times, he'd be watching a game and pulling for his team. If his team loses, he goes pulling for the other team because he wants to be on the winning, winning side. Very competitive, very active that way. Lauren and Adam, they've got, I got three. I got Ella, Everett, and Emery. They're a little bit different too. Emery, he's a little tornado. But uh, Everett, he's real, think, he thinks a lot and says things that doesn't sound like it come from a little child. Now, Ella, let me give you a little story about Ella because we were just up there. Ella is a girly girl. She's not a tomboy. She wants to be a princess, that type, uh, that kind of girl. But her mama, my daughter, is very tough. 
She's very regimented. They're going to eat the right thing. They're going to be at the right thing. They're going to do this. She's very structured. And, and she's tough on Ella. And uh, she told me, she says, I've got Ella running races. I said, Ella? She said, yeah. She said, Dad, she needs to. She needs to do some things she doesn't want to do. She needs some discipline. She needs some this. She needs to push herself. We can't just do everything in life we want to do. I said, okay, okay. I said, well, how's she doing? She said, well, the first race, uh, it was 116, and she finished 63rd. I said, well, that's in the middle. Of, that's not too bad for her. Second race, there was 106. She finished 35th. Good. Keep pushing her. <laughs> and she put her with the soccer team. And she, I said, Ella going to play soccer? She needs to. She needs to learn what it's like to be a part of other kids, be a part of a team, work together, all that. I said, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, she said, but, Dad, uh, Ella doesn't necessarily want to play. I heard her the other day, the coach, they would swap the kids in and out, and I heard Ella tell the coach when it's time for her to go, and she said, if you want to, you can put somebody else in there and play some <laughs> Uh, but anyway, she, she's, a, she's the princess. She's not a tomboy. She's not a competitor like that. Uh, she's a different child. Just to show you, they were in one of their soccer matches. You know, it's hot and heavy coming down to the very end. It's time for Ella to go in. And uh, this is Ella. She's laying on the bench asleep. Uh, uh, I don't know if she's resting up for the next match or what it might be. So anyway... We've got all kinds of people in the church, but we need to do whatever it takes to stimulate each other to be the very best we can be at whatever we do. Now, let me start winding this down. This is a very strange story right here. I've never seen anything like this. There were twin boys born in 1940, identical twins they were adopted by two different families soon after they were born, just a matter of days. And they never saw each other. They didn't even know they had a twin brother for 39 years. And then they finally found out that they were a twin, they had a brother or whatever, and they connected after 39 years. So both of them 39 years old, never seen any, each other or anything. And a psychologist, Thomas Brochard, or Brochard, he studied them. He said he'd never seen anything like this. There hadn't been a lot of cases of twins that were separated and never knew, knew. But he did this search and research on them. Here's what he found out. Both of them were named Jim. One was named Jim Springer. The other was named Jim Lewis. Both of them, this is not unusual, were six foot one, 180 pounds. Both of them in those 39 years, had been married twice. The first wife of each one of them was named Linda. The second wife of each one of them was named Betty. Jim Springer, he named his son James Allen Springer. Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Jim Lewis had a son also. He named him James Allen, A-L-A-N, Lewis. Both of them, they discovered both of them had had dogs named Toy. They both named their dog the same name. They both had hobbies. It was, they were in woodworking, carpentry. 
And they both made some of the identical benches around their property, uh, just one just like the other. Both loved stock car racing. Both bit their nails. Both had spent some time in that 39 years working for the sheriff's department. Both smoked Salem cigarettes. Both drank Miller Lite. Both owned a light view Chevy car. Both suffered migraines. And both voted for the same candidates. But he went through all these different things. These two guys were like two people that lived one life. And that's genetics. Their DNA. They were identical twins and they and it almost their whole life was almost identical. Weird. Well, you look around, we're not all identical. We're all different. We've got different backgrounds, different gifts, different talents, different personalities. The only thing we're, di- we're alike on is we all come to Jesus by the blood. We come, we're drawn by the Spirit of God, and, and our lives built on the Word of God. So we've got that in connection, but we're all different. Everything in this world, if you're a razor blade or a knife, everything is trying to dull you, trying to dull your senses, trying to dull your influence, dull your love for the Lord, dull your commitment, dull your growth, knock the edge off. And God says, I want to sharpen you. And I'm going to use people to sharpen you. Unfortunately, the church today is, in many cases, is in bad shape. Let me, read you, let me show you a little two-minute clip called When God Left the Church or When God Left the Building, something like that. Statistically, the church in America has been dying since the 1970s. The church has closed, and so we're auctioning off all of the contents of the church. I think God would be crying with tears in his eyes. I doubt that there's a single Sunday now where I don't come in and look out and feel disappointed. I mean, we've got all these retrofitted, upfitted, outfitted. We've got it going, man. And look at the result of this. I was the pastor, and I don't know what God is. I always say I'm the least religious person you'll ever meet who goes to church every Sunday. (laughs) I don't think I've ever actually attended a service here other than a funeral. The church is pushing people away instead of attracting people. What's going on? What went wrong? This isn't who Jesus is. I'm angry. I'm not against the church, but when it comes to why am I going or not going there, I am detoxing. Nobody likes a big church, except pastors. We are set in our ways, and we can't change. I can't take a friend of mine who doesn't have a relationship with God. I can't drag them into a church. In a decade, America's going to have a whole different look as far as what is a church and where is a church and what about all these empty buildings. How do we turn church from a noun, a place, and a destination into a verb, a way of being? It's church for folks that don't like church. They do what a church does, which is take care of their neighbors. It's their church. That's where they worship. They meet God. And then they learn what to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday.
Well, that little thing is when God left the building. The church is not a building. The church is us. And that's what we're here for. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Apparently it was going on in the writer of Hebrews' day. People were saying, I don't need other people. I can live this myself. I can do things myself. I don't need to be around the family of God that much. That's not true. We do need people. We need godly people in our lives. I tell you what, if your spouse quits talking, I can tell you one thing, something's wrong. If your children quit eating, something's wrong. And when somebody quits coming to church so they don't need other people, there's something wrong in their life. We do need other people. We need other people because God uses people to shape us, to mold us, to sharpen us. When you're not here at the church, and I'm not talking about it, but when you're not here together, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, you missed out on some people giving their testimonies of what God had brought them through. You don't come to church, you miss on what the Holy Ghost did a few weeks ago and may want to do more than what we let him. You miss out on a chance to encourage somebody that could be really discouraged. You miss out on a chance to pray for somebody that's really hurting. You miss out on a chance to worship God with somebody that loves to see you. We need each other. We sharpen each other. We need that sharp edge to cut through this quagmire of a world of sin. I want you to stand with me. God's changing us. I'm going to ask you to do something. I don't usually do this. I'm going to ask you to go join hands with somebody on the road with you. You may have to walk three or four steps. That'll be okay. I want you to do this. Look at that person on either side of you and tell them, I need you. We do need them. We do need each other. And God left us here for that reason. Now I want you to do this. I want you to pray for that person on either side of you. Let's pray right now. You can ask them if they have a need. But let's pray for each other. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. People. The church is made up of people. The kingdom of God is made up of people. Not perfect people, people following a perfect Savior, a perfect plan. God, we thank you, Lord, that we're part of a family. You may have come from a bad family, but you're part of a family now. And you need other people in your life to help you grow. God's got some things that all of our lives he needs to knock off. And we need other people to help it. Lord, we thank you for each one here today. We pray that you would help us to realize how important it is for us to be with other Christians, whether it's in a worship service or just be involved in other Christians' lives. You didn't mean for us to all live on an island by ourselves 
and walk this walk by ourselves. We need you and we need these others that are traveling this road with us. I pray, God, as this world gets darker, we'll draw closer to each other as we draw closer to you. And I pray that this church will be a place where we don't have to pretend to show up one another, compete with each other, to outdo each other. We'll be people here that concerned and compassionate and care for one another and give prayer for one another. Help us, Lord, be the church of the living God. May we be alive and well, and may we truly, when we come to the end of our journey, we'll be able to say, man, I thank God for the people God brought in my life that helped shape me on this journey. We give you glory, honor, and praise, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, before we leave here, I want to do one thing. Gil, I want you to come up here. Before we leave, we're going to pray for Gil. He's fixing to go in two days to Mozambique to share the good news, to drill wells or build churches, whatever he's going to do. Would you come and let's pray, church. Let's pray for a brother and pray for God to have, keep his hand upon him and to use him in a powerful way. Come on, church. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for our brother. Lord, I thank you for Gil's heart. I thank you for his willingness. I thank you for his faith, Lord. He believes there's nothing you can't do. And you've proven over and over again to him that you can do anything we'll believe you for. God, I pray, God, give him wisdom and understanding. Help him to be a, a good a steward of all that you've entrusted into his life. God, show him by the Spirit what he needs to see. God may not go any doors that you don't want him to go down, but only go where you would have him. God, I pray that he'll be fruitful, multiply, and God, he will be able to come back with a testimony. Look what God has done and look what God is fixing to do. Increase our faith, Lord. Help us to stand together with him. And may he knows the family back home is praying for him. We give you glory. We give you honor. Thank you for the prayers of the saints. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right.